0: Good morning. How many of you are still feeling the effects of Thursday's meal? <laughs> for the next year or so, right? Uh, we have been attending here for a couple months, and um, wherever we've been sitting, we've uh, you know, met as you, as you greet each other. And so those of you that we met in the places we've sat, you've been so gracious to us and so welcoming. Thank you for that. It's just such a blessing for us to uh, get to know some of you each week. Uh, you know, after that introduction, I'm actually more nervous than if you had said nothing. <laughs> <clears throat> a woman met with a marriage counselor and abruptly informed him, I, I want to divorce my husband. The counselor replied, well, do you have any grounds? She answered, said, well, Why, yes, we have almost an acre. <clears throat> the puzzle counselor asked her, well, you don't understand. What I want to know is, do you and your husband have a grudge? woman answered, actually, we don't, but we have a very nice carport. (laughs) The counselor shook his head, and he said, ma'am, I'm sorry, but I just don't see any reason why you should divorce your husband. And the woman answered the counselor, and she said, you know, it's just that the man can't carry on an intelligent conversation. (laughs) That struck close to home for some of you, didn't it? (laughs) You know, when we read through the gospel accounts, we soon get the idea that Christ's disciples just didn't seem to understand what he was talking about a fair amount of the time. The temptation, I think, is to roll our eyes and to think, man, these guys must have been a little bit thick-headed. But that's really not being fair to them. Honestly, I don't I don't get what Jesus was talking about some of the time. And And here we are, 2,000 years, we have the benefit of scholarly research and great bible teaching and and yet well I've, I've asked the the people in the booth to put up a couple of verses i mean these are some verses that i i sometimes scratch my head um, this first one's from mark four twenty five. whoever has will be given more whoever does not have even what he has will be taken from him i i scratch my head to think about what that means how about this one from luke fourteen twenty six. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sister, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Wow. I mean, I think I know what he's talking about, but those are hard words to understand. Or from John 6, 53. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood you have no life in you what does that make you think of right away yeah like the whole vampires i mean it's 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 pretty strong language and this last one this is actually from the where uh, pastor bill finished last week it's from mark 10:31 but many who are first will be last and the last first I don't always understand these statements. And so I, I find myself thinking, well, you know, if the disciples didn't understand everything that Jesus was saying, I, I need to give them a break because there's things that if I was standing there and he said some of these things, I'd just scratch my head and "Why? Oh, I, I believe he's the Son of Man, but I, I really don't understand what he's talking about. Well, this morning we're going to continue on in Mark's gospel and um, pick up from where we were last time. Jesus and His disciples have been moving toward Jerusalem for some time. Christ has taught and healed before in the city of Jerusalem during His three-plus years of public ministry, but with today's passage, we realize that it won't be business as usual as Jesus and His followers approach the holy city this time. So let's read the passage. It's in your Bibles. It's from Mark 10, verses 32 through 34. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. This is actually the third time in Mark's gospel that Christ has predicted his coming death and resurrection. With each prediction, Jesus gives a few more details. And even though the word cross isn't mentioned there in that account from Mark, as we'll see, the cross is certainly implied in what Jesus says here. And because Christ is looking toward the cross, he's walking toward Jerusalem, and he's looking toward the cross, we're going to do the same thing this morning. We're going to look toward the cross as well. First, we'll see how the disciples looked at the cross. Then we'll discuss how Jesus looked at the cross. And finally, we'll think about how we should look at the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross of Jesus Christ stands at the center of all human history. What from man's perspective appears as horrible, shameful, and even degrading, God has used to accomplish his good and merciful and loving purposes for mankind. Not only is the cross the centerpiece of all history, it is, as the Apostle Paul would say, the very power of God demonstrated in us, in you and I, those who have been saved through Jesus Christ. Of course, again, here we are, nearly 2,000 years later, and so we have this historical and theological perspective to draw on, to understand what the cross truly means. We understand its life-transforming truths, but that wasn't true for those women, men and women who had been following jesus christ through for those heady months of his public ministry as they went from village to village through israel they didn't understand what you and i understand so let's go through this passage verse at a time verse 32 they were on their way up to jerusalem with jesus leading the way and the disciples were astonished while those who were followed were afraid again he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him I want you to use your holy imagination here and picture what's being described. There's two reactions there mentioned on the part of Jesus' followers, astonishment and fear. And so Mark draws our attention to that. First, notice a detail in this verse that Mark points out. He says, Jesus is walking ahead of them. Now, that doesn't seem like significant detail, but because the gospel writer takes the time to point it out, it probably is important. From multiple accounts in the different gospels, we know that Jesus was often surrounded by just a a crowd of people. And even when there wasn't a crowd by day, there was always the 12. I mean, he was just with people all the time. As a matter of fact, it's... Important to notice those times in the Gospels when it says Jesus got alone by himself and he spent time with his father in prayer. Because I don't think it happened very often. I mean, it was just this massive people all the time. So this the statement here with Jesus, Jesus leading the way, it, it draws our attention. Here Christ is not in the middle of a group as, he, as was probably just a daily occurrence for them, but he's striding out in front of everyone else. There's a prophetic verse from Isaiah 57 that sheds some light here. Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. We suspect that not only was it Very unusual for Christ to be striding out in front of his followers, but it's that expression that they saw on his face. That really got their attention. Well, that may account for the astonishment, the amazement response, just where Jesus was and this look on his face. But what about about the fear? Remember, there were the two responses that Mark mentioned, astonishment and fear. Well, think back where we've come through Mark's gospel. The hostility of the Jewish religious leaders toward Jesus, it's been increasing for months. And now he's determined to head right into Jerusalem. Everybody knows you don't poke a stick into a a bee's nest in the middle of summer. I mean, you're just asking for trouble if you do that. Even more... The Pharisees had threatened to accuse Christ of stirring up trouble with the occupying Romans. And the Roman provincial governor had his headquarters in Jerusalem. Going there is just asking for trouble. A lot of trouble. And so we see the fear response among those following Jesus. Now, certainly Christ knew all of this. So he takes the twelve aside... To tell them what is about to take place. Let's read the next two verses, verse 33 and 34. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. As I said earlier, this is the third prediction of the Passion in Mark's Gospel. The other two are found in Mark 8.31 and Mark 9.31. And here the prediction is more detailed and precise than the others. So as you're looking at that, the prediction contains six details. Jesus is to be first betrayed, then sentenced to death, handed over to the Gentiles, mocked, spit on, and flogged, executed, and then resurrected. The words crucify or cross don't occur in any of the passion predictions in Mark, although in Matthew's parallel passage the word crucified is used for the very first time in the parallel passage to this one. It's used to indicate the the type of death that Jesus was to to go through, but here in Mark, the statement that Jesus will be handed over to the Gentiles reveals in a veiled way his coming crucifixion. Roman rule uh, was the kind of the, the boot that the Israelites lived under at this time, and under Roman rule, the Jews had no power to execute someone; it, they just they could not do it on their own. They had to persuade Pilate to make that call. The Jews couldn't decide to put Jesus to... They would love to do it, but they couldn't do it on their own. They had to persuade the Romans to do it. In the first century Roman Empire, crucifixion was widely used as a means of capital punishment. That's why we can say that from this prediction going forward, Jesus and his followers are looking toward the cross. The climax of this passage is the prediction of the resurrection. It's interesting in Mark's account, uh, he doesn't record any response by the disciples to any of this. It's just silent. No response at all. Luke, however, in a parallel account to this one, says, the disciples did not understand any of this. So he's three times. This is the third time. More details each time. And they don't get it. They don't understand. They are astonished and fearful. Not surprising responses to something you don't understand. But they didn't really get the heart of what Jesus was saying. When my son Peter was 12 years old in the 7th grade... He suffered a serious sports accident, breaking uh, his upper leg bone. Between traction and a cast, it was a couple of months before our lives returned to normal. A year later, he went through the same scenario as they had to remove the plate that they'd put in a year before, and then they put him back into a cast again. And I know that many of you have been through similar kinds of things in your lives. And our family handled these unforeseen and, yes, unwanted circumstances the way that we all do. Just one day at a time. That's kind of how you do these things. But I'll be honest. There were more than a few nights that I asked the Lord why. I thought, you know, surely God has a sovereign plan in all of this heartache. What is it? What is his plan? I didn't understand. I saw the pain that my son was going through, and um, I, I didn't understand what the purpose was. The Lord didn't give me an answer to my request for Lord why. Have you ever done that? Have you ever said, "Ask the Lord why about something going on in your life, and you just, just quiet. You just didn't get anything. But some years later, when Peter was finishing high school, we were having a conversation, Peter and I. And it was then that Peter told me, this is the first time he'd said this to me, he said he was grateful for that accident that happened to him in the seventh grade. And I, I was just thinking, what? And looking back, he said to me, he realized that those months on crutches, the many changes that took place in his activities and his friends changed and literally his dreams changed because it changed his whole direction in terms of sports and everything else that's so important to a 12-year-old. He said that he realized the Lord used all of that to bring Peter to the Lord. When I learned from my son that the day that he broke his leg was really God answering my prayer for my son's spiritual well-being. Wow. I understood. I understood. You know, in the years since, the Lord has reinforced that lesson repeatedly in my life and in the lives of those close to me. When something troubling comes along, be it a big thing like a family crisis, Or a little thing like the nuisance of being right-handed and having to use my almost useless left hand for everything. It is though the Lord is reminding me again each time I hear this message now. It goes this way. Can you trust me in this unwanted circumstance? Even though you don't know why this is happening, can you trust me? You know, I think I'm kind of a slow learner in this area. But I've learned just enough to tell folks that are struggling with some crisis in their own lives, it's not about what you think it's about. It's not about the broken leg. It's not about a minor surgery on your right hand. Whatever it is in your life, That is the thing that's in your face and that is causing whatever, you know, is troubling you or causing you distress in your family or personally for you. It's not about that. It's about something else the Lord is doing. Trust that God knows what he's doing. It's not about fumbling around with your uncoordinated left hand. Trust your heavenly father. I don't know that the disciples understood this right away, but they would eventually. The disciples were astonished and filled with fear as they headed toward the cross. But what about Jesus? What about Jesus as he looked toward the cross? Well, we've already seen through Isaiah's prophecy that Jesus is resolute. He is determined. He will submit to his Father's will here as in every other matter. That's what Jesus did. He submitted to his Father's will. He knows what his disciples will only come to know much later. namely that the cross is the real purpose for which Jesus came to live among us. Here we are on the, on the uh, I mean, Thanksgiving's behind us. Christmas is the next thing, right? And uh, if you haven't already, you'll be hearing lots of Christmas carols over the coming weeks. And one of my favorites is I Wonder As I Wander. I wonder as I wander out under the sky How Jesus, my Savior, did come for to die for poor, ornery people like you and like I, I wander as I wander out under the sky. Jesus was born to die. I love the Christmas carols that remind me that that little baby was born to die while there was almost certainly some dread in Christ's humanity as he looked toward the cross he never wavered his motivation was crystal clear if you know why you're doing something you can do almost anything and Jesus knew why he was going to the cross for God so loved the world. Love for you and I compelled Jesus to face that cross and just keep walking towards it. I imagine that what his disciples were seeing in Christ that they couldn't explain at the moment was a kind of a set to his chin, a, a squaring of his shoulders, and a determined gleam in his eye as he looked toward Jerusalem. Jerusalem and toward the cross. I like to think that being perfectly God as well as being perfectly man, that Jesus was also, in some sense, looking down through the centuries even as he walked toward Jerusalem. He was seeing each man and woman who would one day come to the foot of that cross. He was seeing You and I. And loving us as he does, there was no hesitation in his stride, no falter in his steps. We were in his heart. We were on his heart with each step that he took as he walked toward the cross. John tells us in his gospel that one of the reasons that Jesus gives these predictions multiple times is is his soul that his followers would believe, so that they would remember after everything came to pass and they would believe. So let's review. The disciples were both amazed and fearful as they looked toward the cross. Jesus was unwaveringly steadfast, motivated by his love for us as he faced toward the cross. But what about you and I? How are we to look at the cross? I did some background reading about crucifixion as it was practiced by the Romans in the first century. There's no other way to say it Crucifixion was a cruel, barbaric, and horrific way to put someone to death. Yes, Jesus died for our sins, but it was an agonizing death. Our sins took an incalculable toll on our Savior. And so while whole books of theology have been written about the meaning of the cross of Christ, I like to focus on just that one aspect of the cross, our sins. I was recently reading about Joni Erickson Tada. Most of you know who she is. I have some family history with devastating disability, enough to admire Joni's inspirational attitude as she faces each difficult day of her life. The Lord has opened up opportunity for Joni to speak to many large groups over the years. It's been uh, 50 years since she dove into the water and broke her neck and became a paraplegic. Joni said that whenever she speaks, she urges anyone in the audience who doesn't know Christ to, quote, lay your sin at the foot of the cross and let God save you. If you're here this morning... And you know in your heart that you are not right with God. That conviction that you're sensing is God's Spirit calling you to the foot of the cross. Jesus died for our sins, all of our sins. I don't mean all of us. I mean all of the sins that you and I have committed. The ones that everyone admits to, which we all do. We all go, oh yeah, everybody does that, right? But he also died for those sins that we are most ashamed of. At the foot of the cross, we discover just how much Jesus loves us. And once we've confessed Jesus to be our Savior and we've repented of those sins, we discover just how freeing knowing that we are forgiven truly is. It's really a feeling unlike any other I've ever experienced in my life to know that I'm forgiven. Joni said something else that struck me, and it applies to anyone who has known Jesus as their Lord and Savior, whether it be for six months or 60 years. Speaking of recent physical challenges as she was going through, she said this. These challenges are, quote, Sheepdogs that constantly snap at her heels, driving her down the road to Calvary where she dies to the sins Jesus died for. Where she dies to the sins that Jesus died for. When we look at the cross, we need to remind ourselves that Jesus died for all of the sins in our lives even those subtle sins that have slowly slithered back into our lives, even if we've known Jesus for decades. As we look at the cross this morning, it's right there. We need to die to those sins that Jesus died for. As we look at the cross this morning, we need to be reminded of this truth found in Acts 3.19. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and the times of refreshing may come from the Lord. We're coming in as a Christmas season. And I know that sometimes when you're with family, things get stirred up. (laughs) Not always good things. But they're family, right? What are you going to (laughs) do? But still, there are things that sometimes we need to take to the cross. Some old wounds. Some baggage that we just, we think we unpack it, but we just keep picking it up. And then we find out when we spend time with family that we really never really let it go. And um, so maybe it's time to come to the cross again this morning. Uh, So I think what we're going to do right now, you want to help me out here, Bill? Yeah. Um, I think that uh, as the worship team comes up, there are some who are going to come up here and uh, be ready to pray. With any of us that want to just come up and pray. Not that you have to have public confession, but just to have someone put their hands on you and just pray with you about whatever it is that you want to leave at the cross today. And if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, don't leave here today without doing that. Let's pray. Father, I wouldn't have known any more than the other disciples what you were really talking about that day. I would have looked at Jesus' face as he was out in front of us very unusually, and I would have wondered, what's going on? Why does Jesus have that look on his face? We're heading to Jerusalem. That's trouble. That's a hornet's nest here. Why are we going there? And let, That's why Jesus came. He was born to die. And he knew that at the cross, he would fulfill. And he would declare how much he loves each of us. Father, this morning, you're calling us to look at the cross again. To be reminded that Jesus paid a terrible price so that our sins could be paid for, that the the Father's wrath would be turned aside from us And we could know only the fellowship of the God who made us. That we could be accepted as his children, be forgiven, be welcomed into his arms. But that all happened because of the cross. And Lord, if we're honest, we'll admit that there's some things that have kind of crept back into our lives over the months and years and we're not really dealing with it. And we need to. So Father, I just pray that you would call us to the cross again one more time this morning. Call us to come to the foot of your cross and to repent and turn away from those things that you died for. And once again, receive your forgiveness and be refreshed in you. Thank you, Jesus, that you loved us that much. We'll pray in your name. Amen.